Welcome to Evolved Radio, where we explore the evolution of business and technology. Today on Evolved Radio, we're talking about everyone's favorite IT topic lately, that's security. I'm joined by Ian Patterson, CEO of Pluralock. Ian's company has a really innovative approach to security. It's an advanced form of user identification that can tell who you are just by how you're typing and moving the mouse. We're going to talk about why users hate passwords, the trouble of security requirements for regulated industries, and much, much more. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, be sure to check out the webpage, evolvedmgmt.com slash podcast for show notes, links to my guests, and to check out previous episodes. Now let's get started. Joining me on the podcast today is Ian Patterson, CEO of Pluralock. Welcome, Ian. Todd, great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about the security industry. It tends to be a topic of extreme interest for listeners of Evolved Radio. And I think the experience that you have and the technology that you're working on is going to be pretty interesting, probably pretty eye-opening for people as well. So uh, if you would like to get us started, maybe just give us a bit of your origin story and uh, your history in the industry. I've, I've been in the security industry for a number of years now. Before that, I came more from a, a big data analytics background. Uh, the commonality is really data science over the last number of years. Um, but what what I've been realizing is that security used to be a domain that uh, was high priesthood. You know, it was only the, the super uh, technical or super specialized individuals who really cared about security. Um, but over the last couple of years, and especially over the last six months or so, I'd say that security just is, is so relevant and so topical to everybody. Even to the point of, I was getting my haircut the other day, and uh, somebody was in the in the barber shop, and we were, we were talking, and they were saying, "Yeah, I think I think I got uh, my my data breached. You know, I got an email saying that my data was breached recently, and that's pretty common. Um, you know, it's these days we're finding more and more that that data just keeps getting in the hands of bad guys, and so it's super common. So, I, I guess my background specifically is, as I was saying, data science. Um, trying to solve problems, business problems, using data, using machine learning. Uh, and Pluralock is really doing exactly that. What you guys do is continuous authentication. And this is probably not a term that a lot of people are familiar with. Most people will uh, be aware of their love-hate relationship with passwords. And more people that are security-minded are aware of two-factor authentication. And anyone that knows a bit about security probably knows about biometrics. And I would probably put continuous authentication into maybe a more advanced version of biometrics would you would, how would you qualify that yeah you're 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 on the money there so pluralock is uh, a company that uses behavioral biometrics which is the study of biometrics over time um, so effectively, what that means is we look at human behavior, and that could be the way that you type, the way that you move a cursor, uh, the way that you sit, the way that you walk. There's unique biometric markers involved in all of that activity that allows us to first identify an individual um, and then be able to make an authentication decision on whether they should be on that device at any given time. The thing that's interesting about behavioral biometrics, unlike a, a fingerprint reader or an iris scanner, swiping your fingerprint is a slice in time, right? It's a, it's a very specific point of time. Typically, you unlock your device and then it's open and, and available. Behavioral biometrics, generally speaking, is looking at, at your behavior continuously. So what that means is not only when you swiped your, your thumbprint uh, can we identify who you are as an individual, but we can look at that continuously throughout the, the, the user session. So to give you an example of that, 
um, we we get deployed as an agent that sits on an endpoint. And anytime a user is just going about their regular day, they're typing an email, they're browsing the web, they're working in Excel, every couple of seconds, we're making a determination whether that's the right person or not. If if it's not the right person, if we detect some anomalous activity, then we can take an enforcement action. And that enforcement action is configurable based on on the environment. But the point is, we're trying to change from uh, from static point-in-time authentications, which most people are, are either using a password or like you're saying, like some sort of biometric. And we're trying to change that paradigm to looking at the whole session over time. Um, you know, if you think about it, most workplaces will typically have five to six authentication moments throughout the day. Generally, you have one when you walk in in the morning, you, you first sit down, you log in, uh, and you get on your desktop. You might have a couple of others if, if you connect to Gmail or Office 365 and you have two-factor authentication turn on, um, there'll be another authentication moment there. Um, and then in some cases, if you're accessing a, a privileged database, like the payroll database, for instance, you might also get challenged. Um, but even if, you, if you're if you checked or challenged five or six times throughout the day, the majority of time throughout that user session is left open. And so there's all sorts of things that can happen. It could be that... Uh, uh, you know, you're working remotely from Starbucks, and you you walk away from your device for a moment, uh, and and you leave it accessible to someone else. Even if you're within uh, an office environment, um, you know the the same the same scenario could could be uh, concerning both from a security perspective as well as a regulatory perspective. So if you if you think about a regulated industry like healthcare, if you were to get up and walk away from your device, and there's sensitive personal health information left on the screen. It's obviously a security concern, but it also becomes a, a huge regulatory nightmare that you've suddenly enabled coworkers to see data that they shouldn't have. So kind of bringing this back to what it is that we do, again, we're, we're trying to look and, and authenticate people, um, through their behavior. And, uh, and, and that, that fundamentally, that, that level of, of continuousness, um, is really what defines us, um, as different in the marketplace. So the way that the software works then is that, uh, the same way that someone has a particular signature style, uh, even, you know, people can be, uh, authenticated based on their, their cadence, their walk, the way that they, they they move through a space. Those are some of the more advanced biometrics, but the same way that people will type on a keyboard or move a mouse, you can actually detect a consistency to that and basically identify a person based on how they're typing. Is that, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the key is it's not what you type, it's how you type. And in the same way, it's not what you click on, it's how you click on it. Um, the, the technology actually dates back to World War II. So Morse code operators way back in the day had a unique signature. Um, even if you didn't know uh, or couldn't decode what the Morse code operators were tapping, fellow operators could, could identify who the operator was just by the unique signature they had. They called it a hand. So the Morse code hand was unique to the operator. And so it was a, it's a very early way of doing signals intelligence where uh, you didn't know what they were typing because it was encrypted, um, but you at least knew that it was the same operator. That same technique is ultimately what what we're doing just in a, in a much more advanced way. We're looking at behavior over time and we're looking on the keyboard, it's the speed, rhythm, and cadence of how you type. Um, on the mouse, it's things like direction, speed, change in direction, the interplay between speed and clicks and direction. Um, there's, there's unique biometric markers that we're able to to identify, pull out, extract, create a profile of, and then use to authenticate on a continuous basis. Technology that they use for the the capture, the new capture boxes, where it's you have to click and say, "I'm not a robot." I've never understood specifically how that works. That 
you know, well, I, I click on a box. How does that identify me not as a robot? Is that the same thing? Uh, similar. I mean, there, I would say that the things that are, are similar to the, the CAPTCHA box is we're looking at the response, right? And, and humans are going to respond differently to a prompt than machines would. If you think about uh, just a person, the way that they type or the way that they move a mouse, it's always going to be a little bit different. You're never going to do two things exactly the same every time. Um, and so there's always going to be a, what we call an organic drift uh, between one interaction and the second interaction. And we can actually model what that organic drift looks like. And there are some things that we can expect that drift to have that are going to be different than uh, just a, a, a some random data thrown into a robot trying to mimic the same thing. There's there's, there's nuances there that we would expect um, to be able to detect differently. So I would say that the CAPTCHA example, uh, absolutely, it's a great way of identifying, are you human or not? We're actually trying to answer a more concrete question, which is, are you the same human? So it's it's similar, um, but we're looking a little bit more nuanced at at some of those biometric markers, like the speed, rhythm, and cadence of how you type. I, c- I could see that as a, a tricky difference of... You know, uh, maybe you've had four cups of coffee and you're a little jittery and your hands are kind of splashing all over the keyboard. Uh, I find it really interesting that, that you've developed, uh, a sort of a, a tight ability to find the, the match between that drift and what the, the typical cadence is for, for an individual. Uh, it, it, you sort of identify an, an important point that it's not just the fact that you are a human. It's that you're the same human that was originally authenticated. So I've logged into this secure system. And yes, it's still me. Yes, it's still me versus there's still a person operating there. Because the, right. the, the old school approach of this is, if there's no activity, then blank out the, the, the screen, turn on the, you know, the, the lock and enable the screensaver, whatever the case is. Uh, yep. And yours is, uh, doesn't matter if there's activity or not, uh, there, it's, it's still able to detect that the person uh, interacting with the keyboard or interacting with the mouse is the same person that was originally authenticated for the session. Exactly. I mean, the, the technology itself was developed over a number of years by our, our PhD data scientists. It's, it's a hard problem. Problem. Anytime you're dealing with with people and trying to identify how do people behave, it's a very hard problem to solve. Um, we have three issued patents on this technology. Uh, a, a significant amount of time has gone into the development of it, so I'm you know it's not it's not easy. And certainly with with the way that machine learning has advanced over the last five years or so has made this sort of thing possible at scale, um, as well as the, the, the compute power. But but you, you brought up an interesting point there, which is that because we're able to look uh, continuously and we're able to uh, actually autonomously make a decision to challenge a user or not, it actually becomes a, a conversation around convenience and friction within the workplace. So a lot of our early clients were in the defense industry. Um, we've got a lot of government uh, customers. We also deal quite a lot in the enterprise financial services space. Because um, they have the the same sort of threats that that governments do, which is that they're defending against nation state actors. Um, but what we're finding is that when we go in and and have a conversation about security, there's there's 1,800 other cybersecurity startups out there in the world. It's a very noisy space. The way that we've been able to differentiate is actually selling convenience. So what I mean by that is, if you can imagine that in most cases, security and convenience are are two opposing poles on a spectrum. Right on the one side, you have something that's very secure and completely in, inusable. On the other side, you have something very convenient and it's wide open to attackers. And, and most of the time, solutions are on some end of that spectrum and they may go 
they may skew slightly towards more convenient at the expense of security, and then becomes a business trade-off. We're trying to flip that around. And when we go into an organization, we actually say, look, don't choose between security and convenience. Make it convenient for the user. Um, and we can do that by deploying this continuous monitoring system. But you actually get more security because the more the user does their everyday activity, the more confidence that we can have that it's the right person. So in effect, we're actually saying, don't do anything special. Don't fumble for your your keys and look T-Factor dong. Don't try and get an SMS message to your smartphone and and get the first one sent and then it didn't send and then, you know, like all, all that frustrating stuff. Um, we can actually do away with, with that um, and provide better security. And so effectively what we're selling is a way for IT administrators and CIOs to scale down some of the frustrations around traditional authentication. Um, so we have a, a financial services client that they actually got rid of their password rotation. Uh, they got rid of their password complexity requirements. They got rid of their session timeouts. And in theory, that would increase the risk of the organization. They deployed us as a compensating control to decrease that risk. And they got better security. They got better user uh, experience. And they're expecting to see a decrease in overall help desk, help desk tickets um, simply as a result of, of decreasing some of this friction. So long long story short, um, we're selling security, but the reality is that people are buying convenience. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point because uh, I am certainly one of those people that rail against uh, password complexity. There's there's definitely a good enough type approach here. And yep. you know, if you have uh, a 12 character password that requires uppercase, lowercase, uh, you know, a numerics, as well as special characters, or maybe it doesn't allow special characters, which messes with sort of your typical password. All of this forces the user to just throw their hands up in frustration, especially a non-technical person that doesn't actually uh, consider or, or value security. They end up just writing it down on a sticky and putting it on their, on their desktop. So right. the, I think the, the friction around security is actually a really, really important component of the future of security is, uh, you know, any, any security policy or system is only as, as strong as the users. And that's why one of the most important things you can do around security is user training, you know, phishing, pr- uh, campaigns to make sure that people are aware of what these things look like, but also just anything that you can make the user experience easier around the the password and the use of the password, I think, is both a godsend to the people in charge of the security policy and also the people that are underfoot of the security policy as well. I think password complexity requirements is a tricky one. Definitely, there's, there's a move towards either removing or reducing the password complexity requirements. But I think the challenge for the CIO or the VP of IT is, do you really want to be the guy who goes to the board and says, we just had a breach. The reason this breach occurred is we reduced the password complexity requirements. My bad. We have organizations like NIST coming out and recommending that, hey, guys, we don't actually need to have these super long and complex passwords because uh, it's it's not actually getting the behavior that we want out of users. Um, I think that, that most CIOs, certainly that, that we talk to, are looking for help in being able to reduce those complexity requirements without exposing themselves to to somebody who's who's maybe not as sophisticated to say, why did you just make this organization less secure? Um, and so it's, it, for that reason, it's really a, a two, two-fold approach. One is remove some of those frustrating policies. But at the same time, if you can deploy... Uh, a compensating control to reduce any attack surface that that may introduce, then you really get the best of both worlds. And it's it's tough. I mean, it's tough being the CIO and, and having to have those hard conversations with uh, boards in particular, um, measuring security and, and trading that off against uh, friction. Yeah, and, but I think uh, the way you describe it as a compensating control, 
to allow it to be easier for the user, but still secure in some some method is an important one. I view this as as one of the useful cases for for uh, two factor. Is it's okay if someone gets your password. It's not great, but at least you know there's at least a secondary verification. You would see a prompt saying, "Hey, do you authorize this this device from Uzbekistan that wants to use your account?" You say, "No, absolutely not." Okay, I'm going to go change my password now. So at least there's some level of control after the fact. I, I see this as uh, just sort of lowering the bar. It's okay that you don't need a 32 character password, but okay, an eight character pa- password with at least some level of complexity uh, just right. makes it a little easier, but also still uh, keeps the the security intact. So I, I think that's a, a an important point. So so two factor is also a, a good example. I mean, uh, we have just an internal policy where all of our staff have to turn on two factor for everything that that provides it. So I think two factor is great. I think that the challenge becomes it's it's yet another roadblock to getting things done. So we, we have a, a, a hedge fund client and their their struggle is they need to be secure, but they can't they can't frustrate their users to the point where they're unable to get their work done. And two factor is one of those interesting ones where it provides really great security, but it completely destroys your flow state. You know, if, if you're sitting down and you're trying to make a decision, if you're coding, if you're writing, it's it's very frustrating and it really interrupts even beyond the 30 seconds it takes you to go through that handshake. The the, the impact of that interruption is actually more severe than that. What, what we do with two-factor is because we're authenticating a user every couple of seconds, um, we actually integrate with solutions like CallSign and Duo that ordinarily would require a step-up authentication. So if a user is going to access uh, the payroll database, for instance, normally they would trigger a two-factor step-up authentication. But rather than having Duo uh, send a, a notification to their phone and, and have them go through that workflow, um, they'll actually query our APIs, see that we've authenticated that user in the last 30 seconds, see that their identity score is very high. So we have a high confidence that it's the right person and then just let them in without that two-factor step. So it's still a form of two-factor because it's still something that you are, which is what we're effectively doing. Um, but we do that invisibly in the background. And so if you think about that at scale, you know, if you have three or four two-factor requests per user per day, and then if you have an organization of 5,000 employees or 10,000 employees or 100,000 employees, the business impact of stopping work to do that handshake and forcing the user to go through that is actually very severe. Now, if you can get equivalent security without bothering the user, that's a win-win. And so that's, you know, again, when we're talking about reducing friction, those are the types of use cases that we really gravitate towards because we're providing better security, but we're also providing the user an easier way of going about their business. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point because I, I, like everyone else, suffer from that where, you know, Chrome updates uh, its browser, which forces LastPass to then re-verify me on multi-factor. Uh, and, you know, I had to rebuild my machine after I lost my hard drive. And I, I was frustrated with the number of times that I had to do the, the, the two-factor authentication to re-authenticate all of the systems that, uh, you know, generally knew who I, I was. And I get it that you guys probably can't cover the initial login because unless you're integrated deep to, you know, the, the OS layer for authentication, hopefully that comes later. Um, but at least to sort of skip the steps where there is a high authentication 
competition score. I think that's a really cool addition. Do you do you see that as something uh, as a potential in the future where you know the your password prompt is is basically type this sentence and uh, based on the, the software it's able to authenticate you from beginning as well as the continuous authentication? Yeah, so we actually have it, it's it's available as a closed beta right now, um, but we do have a credential provider uh, built into Windows. So rather than using the Windows Hello workflow uh, that uses biometrics, for instance, um, we'll actually use the passphrase. Uh, so the way that you type a specific passphrase, again, is unique to you, and, and we can use that to authenticate. So we do have that available. The other thing that we're doing with with a number of uh, virtualization clients is we integrate with Citrix and VMware. So for remote desktop or virtual desktop um, environments, we can actually uh, do that initial handshake through a, a web browser or web prompt, um, and then also can uh, connect into the virtual desktop and protect that continuously as well. So short answer is yes, um, you know, it's, it's coming. We're trying to uh, evolve in a way that that we spend our time and attention on on the areas of highest friction for users because that ultimately just means you know that's the most amount of value and the solution overall like it sounds like it's a it's a uh, it's complex it's advanced uh, which mean typically means it's enterprise based uh, do you have sort of a market that is typical or uh, someone that um, you know, a lot of the MSPs that may listen to the podcast are wondering is this for me or is this just for hedge funds and banks and governments and things like that. Can you maybe speak to that a bit? Yeah, we've definitely started in the enterprise space. Our early customer wins were from DOD, uh, financial institutions, organizations that are both enterprise, like you said, but also suffer from really severe security threats. I'd say crypto is is also up there in terms of the type of uh, the, the level of risk that organizations have. Probably those three are the highest. Um, what we realized, though, is because we've designed the system to work for scale, uh, to be able to support thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of users, it's, it's all very automated and autonomous. So the system itself, when it gets deployed to an endpoint, it automatically enrolls the user, uh, creates a profile for that user. And then it flips from enrollment mode to protection mode automatically. There's no, there's no administrator involvement. Really, the only thing the administrator has to do is push out the agent, which you can do through a policy update or, or an MSI. So because we built it for scale and we assumed that uh, the administrator wouldn't have time to, to handhold uh, many of, many of the client side functions, it actually is a pretty good fit for small businesses who either don't have a lot of ex- expertise or um, only have a guy or a couple of guys who are able to, to manage, you know, a couple hundred endpoints. Um, so it's kind of interesting that, that we built it for enterprise, but it, it seems to, to be pretty good fit for the mid market and, and SMBs as well. Um, I think to your question about, um, uh, about enterprise requirements. So we do have a reseller program. Um, we, there, uh, there's going to be some, some announcements coming out where we're formally, uh, announce our, our global channel program. And we do have, uh, channel partners all throughout the world on every major continent already signed up today. Um, and that's both a, a mixture of managed providers uh, as well as resellers. Um, you know, I think that the the markets that were that we play best in are usually regulated. So historically, those have been uh, government, financial services, 
and critical infrastructure. We have some power plants also and, and utilities that, that use our software. But really, it's it's anybody who has a regulated industry, we seem to do pretty well in. And I think largely it's because if you're in a regulated industry, you need multi-factor authentication. If you're in a regulated industry, you need continuous monitoring and you also need anomaly detection. And these are just basic requirements that are true across pretty much all regulated industries. Now, you're always going to find non-regulated commercial accounts who strive to hit a higher bar. Um, and so we also do quite well with those. But, you know, we've got... Uh, we, we've got good representation across a number of industries right now who, who are looking for those um, advanced solutions, things that will protect against advanced threats, um, but also can check the box for PIPA and PCI and NIST or, or even just ISO 27001. Yeah, the regulation of IT is is coming fast and furious. Uh, a lot of people are now dealing with uh, clients that have HIPAA requirements as well. Um, I, you know, PCI was a was a godsend for me as a former manager of a practice a security practice because someone else was uh, dictating the level of uh, security process that was required, and that creates a lot of work. It's good for the IT industry, but like you said, it's if it, if it's not done in the right way, it's it creates a lot of friction with the users so this it is a it isn't sort of a nice bridge between the two to provide some advanced measures but also uh, not be impeding uh, the workflow uh, like you said um, we've actually seen it pop up in in cyber insurance policies as well where where it's it's almost like a oh i didn't actually realize i needed to do these three things i didn't know i needed to, to look at logs on a regular basis in order to comply with my my cyber insurance policy or just the rider that i have on my my general liability i've heard that a number of times recently. And so it's actually, it's a question that I've, I've started posing to the managed service partners that we have to say, how many of your customers actually know what they need to be doing in order to remain on site of their cyber policy? And, and the amount of blank responses I get is actually pretty high. So if I were a managed service provider, if I was if I was somebody who had responsibility for somebody else's IT infrastructure, I'd actually be asking those questions because in a lot of cases, organizations think that they're not regulated, therefore they can do whatever they want, which is true to an extent, but there may be other reasons why they still have to comply and, and get to that, that base level um, of best practice. The other one that we've been seeing quite a bit is um, service providers to larger financial institutions. There's, there's generally some contractual obligations that say they have to be SOC 2 compliant or they have to um, abide by standards very similar to, to a, a NIST or, or a SOC. So, you know, even if you are a high tech company and you've got a SaaS platform for managing payroll, um, even though you may not be regulated, the customers that you service may be regulated and there may be some flow through obligations. And so the idea of vendor risk management as, as an IT driver, um, I think is going to become more and more common, especially as these large incumbent organizations effectively push through or pass down risk to their service providers and say, look, you need to do these these bare minimum things. And even then, I still need you to indemnify against any sort of loss, which means you need a, a really good cyber program in place. Yeah, it's the odd part about security. Um, the, there was sort of this period uh, around the introduction and the renewal of the Patriot Act, and people got really paranoid about data residency. And mm -hmm. uh, so many times we in, in the IT practice, we'd run into clients claiming that they could never host their information in the US it was it was factually not ab not true it was just that they heard all of this this fud around you know you can't have their stuff in the states the government will just come and seize all of your all of your servers 
and the reality of what I often told people is unless uh, someone has told you that you have data residency issues, or if you consult with a lawyer and they tell you that you have data residency issues, nine times out of 10, this is not a problem. And I kind of wish that that level of awareness or paranoia was present around the risk mitigation issues that you just talked about. Like so much of that stuff, people just have no clue that they're actually on the hook for things that, that, that they're unaware of. Right. Are you collecting sensitive information? Are you touching uh, government data? You know, do you have uh, obligations to third-party clients based on OLAs and and master uh, agreements? Well, so much of that stuff really slips under the radar unless it's under enterprise management, right? Yeah, and and it it goes a couple of hops away from you. So I'll, I'll give you a personal example. Um, Pluralock, obviously, being a, a cybersecurity vendor, we're, we have a heightened degree of cyber awareness. Everybody that works here is extremely paranoid about everything that we do, which as, as they should. Um, and so that, that same level of paranoia goes to the vendors we work with. And so we actually select vendors um, partly based on their level of cyber hygiene and their ability to, uh, to maintain their business and, and defend against cyber threats. The challenge is uh, one of our vendors' vendors got hit in the Typeform breach uh, from last week. And even though we did our due diligence on the vendor itself, and it seemed like everything was above board and, and it looked good, um, we were still exposed to risk because their vendors' vendors used Typeform. And so it, it's challenging to be able to first even just identify these risks that exist because we live in such an interconnected world, but then to be able to defend against them or to to develop policies to mitigate against those is actually pretty, pretty difficult. I'll give you another example. Um, Some of the large financial institutions that we work with have a lot of overseas relationships. And so it could be something as basic as a call center that they've contracted uh, in the Philippines or in India. Or it could be some some other business process that they've outsourced. One of the challenges that they that they face uh, quite frequently is the ability to identify who the worker is, and so we see this a lot with financial institutions where they'll they'll interview a candidate who they want to work with that's that's overseas. They'll background check that individual. They will reference check that individual, and they'll go through a full interview process. And by the end of it, they have a, a pretty high degree of confidence that this is a person that is trustworthy, that they can work with. Uh, and so they, they uh, give them a contract or, or give them a job. And it's possible that this all occurs through a third party. So it may not actually be the organization in Canada or the US. Uh, it may be uh, that they're, they're doing this all through a third party. What we've seen multiple times is that the person who shows up for work on day one or even day 50 is not the same person who has been reference checked, background checked and interviewed. But because there is uh, a, a degree of complicity that the worker still has all the right authorized credentials. And we've even seen it where there have been fingerprint scanners or or um, other forms of biometrics deployed within the environment in India or, or in the Philippines or wherever it is. And the authorized user shows up in the morning, swipes their thumb, they go off and do some other work. And then ostensibly a, a lower paid person sits down and, and does the work that the higher paid person was, was hired for. And so it becomes very, very challenging to be able to first even identify how much of that takes place and be able to defend against that. So um, even now, the, the guys in outsource markets are outsourcing the work, taking the, the Tim Ferriss four-hour work week a, a little too far, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But it's challenging, right? I mean, that vendor risk management, there, there's not a lot of good solutions out there. 
our so just as, as a bit of a plug, I mean, the way that we solve that is um, we we actually encourage our customers to use some sort of virtual desktop technology. So you you retain the data in whatever secure enclave that you have uh, in North America. So there's no data exfiltrated to uh, a country that you don't have access to. Um, but then also when you're securing that virtual desktop session or, or that VDI infrastructure, we we run our software inside of it. So you have not only whatever your base level of controls are, be it two-factor or just login and password, but also should should that individual walk away from their machine, should that individual trade places with their coworker, whatever, we're able to recognize that in real time. And in some cases, our clients just want that, that information. They just want to understand what the threat is and be able to look at that in a consolidated report, either in their SIM system like Splunk or QRadar or whatever, um, or just in a standalone report that we provide. Or in other cases, if the level of sensitivity is high enough, like if it's financial information, if it's PII, personally identifiable information, um, they may configure it so that there's an enforcement action that takes place in real time autonomously. Again, because we have uh, a high confidence in being able to make those decisions, um, in a lot of cases, we can just let the AI run, challenges the user, potentially locks them out. Um, and and by doing that, by having those controls in place, it actually lets the, the IT staff focus on higher value uh, work items. So they're not just constantly refreshing a log window seeing when there's a uh, an incident that pops up, they're focused on higher value stuff. They have confidence that they know we're protecting them in the background. And then when there is an incident, we'll take care of it right away. And they don't need to drop everything that they're doing just to respond to it. Yeah, I agree. I love the autonomous aspect of it, that the security is being managed. And I'm a big fan of managing by exception. So you're not, like you said, you're not combing the logs looking for uh, for those those events. Those are events are being monitored by an, essentially an AI to, to look for something to alert you that is actually worth noting. So I think that's a, a really good advancement as well. Um, I think so AI and machine learning, I mean, machine learning as a subset of AI, I, I think that there's, there's a lot of interest in the hype of artificial intelligence. And what I always tell people is that the way to view machine learning or AI is that it becomes a force multiplier and it becomes a way of getting your people to do higher value work. That's that's how you should be looking at AI. It, it's a great feature, but the benefit it provides you is it will do things that are monotonous, uh, that are commonplace and allows your staff to go do other things while the AI takes care of, of the 80% or even the 90 or the 95%. I'd say that Darktrace, um, you know, has... has has an interesting reputation, but I'd say that they're very well known for promoting their use of AI. Um, and there's a bunch of others as well. Um, but the whole point is being able to leverage AI or machine learning to cut down on the monotonous day-to-day activity and then focus your staff on the higher value items. Um, and I think that especially for, for channel providers where you have a lot of smaller clients, that's, that's really the same thing they've been doing for years and years, which is automate as much as possible and then only deal with with things that are problematic. And what we're seeing is that security is getting to that point as well. You can automate a whole lot of this and then really only deal with the the high ticket items. Um, and ultimately, you're providing a better value to your customer as well. So it's a, it's a win-win-win. Yeah. You mentioned crypto earlier. Uh, is this a, a space, obviously, being a security company and someone who's security-minded, it's a it's a, a space of interest for you, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, any overlap in the work that you do or just sort of uh, a curiosity moment? I'm sure the finance companies are interested in, in crypto as well. Uh, like you said, it's a, it's a higher, more vulnerable attack vector uh, because there's a 
lot less regulation to control the authentication mechanisms or uh, the lack thereof in some cases. Yeah, crypto is interesting. I mean, I've, I've been interested in the blockchain space, the crypto space um, since since well before it was sexy. The thing that I find really interesting is that you you cannot have a conversation about crypto and blockchain without talking about the security aspect to it. And what I've seen just sitting partially on the sidelines looking at the space is the crypto project, the crypto projects and specifically the cryptocurrencies that are successful are the ones that haven't been hacked or haven't been hacked yet. And so especially if you're comparing the crypto exchanges and you chart uh, the, the life expectancy and, and the reasons why some of them are no longer around. Obviously, there's some regulatory risk there, but the, the majority is really who can protect their users' data? Who can protect the keys? Who can protect the wallets? Who can protect the fact that you've, you've, you're keeping currencies on the exchanges? And so security actually becomes a differentiator. There's, there's all sorts of interesting aspects to various projects, uh, be they wallet or currencies or exchanges or what have you. But I think if, if I were um, looking at it from an investment standpoint, my investment thesis would actually be who has the highest degree of security built into their model of whatever it is they're working on. And those are the ones that I want to bet on because security is such a high, high important topic um, that it, that it really, it's existential to, to the project itself. Um, so certainly, I mean, we've, We've been uh, brought in to to consult on on a few projects, and um, you know I won't go into too much detail about, about what those were. Um, but what I find interesting is is the level of risk that they have is just so high. There's also a hesitancy for for a lot of these exchanges and projects to work with law enforcement. And so, whereas a traditional bank probably already has a relationship with uh, local police or federal police, because the crypto market is still in a bit of a uh, gray area, although it's it's getting cleared up, um, especially the the recent SEC uh, announcement about Ethereum, there, there's still a bit of hesitancy to work with law enforcement. And so, what that tells an attacker, um, if I'm going to target something, if I target a bank, I know that the the feds are going to get involved. If I target a crypto exchange, it's hosted in the Bahamas. I I probably don't have the same level of of respect. Response. And so, obviously, as an attacker, I'm going to go attack whatever is easiest and whatever is is safest, um, and it's going to provide the best the best bang for buck. So, yeah, I think that that's that's a big part of why a lot of the news that we hear about blockchain about crypto is you know 30 million just got wired to uh, uh, to an account that or to a wallet, I should say that it, that it shouldn't to. Maybe to continue on that vein, any any other thoughts of the future of uh, the security industry? Crypto and blockchain are certainly one of those. Any other areas of interest in in the security field that you're watching for future unfold? I think consolidation is the big one. You know, I mentioned 1800 cybersecurity startups. Everybody has a story about going to the RSA conference and seeing more and more and more of the same vendors that are out there. Um, So, you know, I think from my perspective, I, I see that a lot of the survivors or the winners in the security space are going through consolidation. You know, it's it's not enough just to have a single point solution um, and and say this is the silver bullet. You need defense in depth, but you also prefer that defense in depth to come from a smaller number of vendors. So I think that the opportunity that presents, especially for the channel, um, be it resellers or or managed providers, is if you can take best of breed point solutions, consolidate them, and then bring them to your clients, you're actually doing them a huge service. Um, not only because you're doing that that integration work upfront, um, but you've also done the selection right. So pick. A next-gen antivirus, pick a next-gen firewall, um, you know, pick a, a couple of, of monitoring solutions, bundle them all together, and then take those, take that package uh, to your customers, and, and you're solving a really big problem, even just by by selecting and integrating those. So I think consolidation 
um, from a, from a couple different directions is is something that will continue, and it's something that I'm watching. Um, I think the other big one would just be the the level of automation. Everybody's heard of the cybersecurity skills shortage. I think the the, the latest figure I saw was a million cybersecurity jobs are going to be left unfilled by 2020, and it only gets worse after that. So the, what that means, in effect, is that the solutions, the the cybersecurity products that survive and do well are the ones that focus on on automation. Generally speaking, the rule of thumb is every new enterprise security product you bring on requires an additional staff member to care and feed. Um, and I think that the, the solutions that are going to do well are the ones that actually reduce that number, that are able to act autonomously, that are able to cut down on the number of manual actions that an IT staff member has to do, that uh, that allows you to do more with less. I think those are the ones that are going to to do well. So consolidation, automation are, are the two big drivers that I'm seeing. Excellent. Well, uh, we'll look to wrap up in interest of your time and uh, the, the listener's attention uh, as well. Um, any call to action? Any things you'd like to ask of the audience or have them take a look at or do? I, well, I think as a follow-up, um, if, if you're interested in learning more, uh, I'll, I'll send uh, a short two-minute video that, that has a bit of an explainer on on the solution, which uh, would be great if you could if you could help share around. We can include it in the show notes. Yeah, perfect. Um, I think that my my question of, of the channel would be: What are the threats that you're seeing, especially from the the, the SMB or the mid market? I'm really curious to hear what sorts of either threats or challenges um, that that you're seeing. You know, law firms are a great example of uh, areas of extreme risk that maybe are not as developed uh, with their cyber hygiene. Um, but I'm curious if there's other sort of pockets of of opportunity um, from a, a security standpoint. Okay, great. And if people uh, want to send you that those details or get in touch with you uh, further, where should they reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. So connect with us at plurilock.com. That's P-L-U-R. R-I-L-O-C-K.com. And uh, there's a chat bot that's on there uh, that is ready and willing to uh, to have a conversation with you. Okay, great. And uh, LinkedIn or Twitter, anything like that on social channels? All the social channels. We're okay. on all those channels. Okay, great. Well, this has been fascinating. Appreciate your time, Ian. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Todd.